Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to the episode of the HR Chat Show. In this episode, we're going to consider the legal rights and obligations of employers, how to stay compliant and ways to minimize the risk of claims. Our guest this time is Stuart Rudner, founder of Rudner Law. Stuart, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Bill. So beyond my very wee introduction there, Stuart, please uh, tell our listeners a bit more about yourself, your your educational and career history, and why you founded Rudner Law. Happy to do that. Uh, so to make a long story, hopefully not too long, uh, I actually did my undergrad degree in industrial relations back when I wasn't quite sure what that meant. Um, but I learned a lot about you know, employee, employment relationships and also took an employment law course, which really turned me on to the, the subject. Uh, so then went on to law school and I've now been practicing law for a little over 20 years, uh, the vast majority of that time focused on employment law. And in the last few years, I had a, a partnership and now I've got my own firm uh, and all we do is employment law. And we make sure that our clients understand the rights and obligations that arise in the employment relationship. And I think a big part of what we enjoy doing, and we have a great team here, it's not just myself, uh, we all enjoy not only advising our clients and, and advocating on their behalf when, when need be, but also educating. Uh, because what we notice is the vast majority of issues and conflicts arise, not because someone is trying to cheat someone else deliberately. It's usually because there's either misinformation that they're basing their decisions upon or just a, a lack of information. So a lot of what we try to do is educate our clients, but also just educate the general public, which is why we like doing things like this podcast and a lot of presentations and we lead courses and we have an active blog and very active social media platforms, et cetera, um, because this is what we do. And even though I've had competitors say, well, why are you giving this information away for free? Uh, the reality is that it usually just makes people aware of issues that they need to know more about and people appreciate the fact that we are providing them with useful information and you know, often ends up um, developing really good client relationships because of that. So uh, that's, I guess, a nutshell of what we do at Rudner Law. But like I said, a lot of it is about building relationships and educating. Wonderful. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. We are not billing you to listen to this particular episode today. <laughs> it is all entirely free. Now, uh, one one department within organizations that you do like to educate and, and work with specifically are, are uh, HR people, the HR department. And in fact, Rudner Law starts uh, when they're working with an organization by, uh, by offering an HR checkup in which you review the cornerstones of the legal relationship, which includes uh, contracts, policies, and procedures. Can you just talk to us a bit about what that looks like and why that's important? Yeah, this is something that's really important to us, Bill, and, and I'll, I'll correct one thing. In our ideal world, the relationship starts with the HR checkup. Uh, in the real world, what usually happens is we have a new client comes to us because they have some sort of issue or emergency to deal with, such as a wrongful dismissal claim or a human rights claim, uh, and we'll help them deal with that, put out that fire, so to speak. And then we have the chance to debrief at the end and explore how that could have been avoided or at least the, mis the risk minimized. And that's when we get into our, what we've called the HR checkup. And the HR checkup is, you know, what we like to do is review 
an organization's contracts, policies, procedures, um, make sure that they are not only compliant with the law, but also strategic, uh, which, and this to me is one of the best things that employers can do. I mean, it's critical to understand that in Canada, the employment laws are designed to protect employees and not employers. And there are some things that you can't avoid, such as employment standards, you know, legislative requirements, but there are a lot of things that you can change through the strategic use of contracts and policies. Uh, so that's a big part of where we offer value is not only ensuring compliance, but advising our clients on how they can put those contracts in place to reduce their costs, to maximize their rights as employers, to minimize potential risk. Um, so we go through that process and really get an understanding as we do, we get an understanding of what the organization's all about, what their corporate mindset is when it comes to employment relationships. And they also get to know us as a law firm. And hopefully at that point, we, we start becoming more of a trusted advisor. And that's usually the start of a very long relationship where we now become the advisor. And whenever, whenever an issue arises, they don't have to worry about finding an employment lawyer and meeting an employment lawyer and explaining what they're all about because we already know. Uh, so they can call us or, or more likely shoot us a quick email and say, here's what's going on. And we can either call her right back and explain what we recommend. But we've got, got that ongoing relationship, which, as I said, ideally starts with the HR checkup. Because once the HR checkup is done, the organization is going to be in a much stronger position, like I said, to reduce their labor costs, but also reduce risk and increase their rights. Uh, and getting back to what I was saying earlier about misinformation or lack of information, it's amazing to me what it, you know all the opportunities that employers miss the opportunities to increase their rights to reduce their costs because they have no idea how they can do that so people just say well we'll just put a a contract in place find a template from a colleague or we'll find a template online and we'll put our company name on it and now we're good and we're compliant uh which to me is an incredibly significant missed opportunity uh, because there is so much more that can be done, but a lot of organizations just don't don't take the time to uh, to do it properly, and that's where hopefully we can explain, you know, how we can help. And we have a a package which we call our HR checkup package, which tries to explain you know what the value is in doing this. It's not just a, a sort of a make work project. You know, the idea is that you spend a bit of time, you spend a bit of money at the outset, but you really reduce or, or you really put yourself in a stronger legal position at the end of it. Okay, thank you. Now, the employment relationship is governed by a complex combination of laws, of course. Uh, I'd like you now to offer an overview of, of a few of those uh, key areas, the ones that you help with, and maybe some tips for HR and for leaders to, to help em, em, employers stay compliant. Let's start with employment standards legislation. Yeah, I think I think it's really critical to, to remember what you just said, which is the employment relationship is governed by a, a complex myriad of, of laws. And I have a lot of sympathy for folks who are in HR because they have so much on their plate already and they're expected to be quasi lawyers and to understand employment standards and human rights and all the different forms of law that apply. So employment standards is, is really the basic employment standards legislation sets out the minimum protections available to employees. Again, this is all for the sake of protecting employee rights. Uh, so employment standards would cover things like hours of work and overtime and statutory holidays and vacation um, and all the things that you cannot contract out of, uh, but also a lot of the things that people seem to ignore, you know, such as, for example, in Ontario, 
there is a law that says no worker can work for more than five consecutive hours without a break. And yet there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who do that every single day, or they do that occasionally. And even something seemingly innocent, like you're, one of your workers coming to you and saying, you know, I know I normally work nine to five, but today I've got to leave early to pick up my child. So can I just work through my lunch? Seems innocent. They're the one asking for you. You're not forcing them to do it. And yet, if they work eight to four without a break, then you are breaching the Employment Standards Act. And one thing to be aware of is that the Employment Ministry of Labor has inspectors that can come in. And if there was a complaint or if they just, you know, sometimes they do audits and, and blitzes, uh, if they come into your workplace, they actually have more rights than the police. Uh, they don't need a warrant, but they can come in. They can demand to review all of your HR records. And they're not limited by the complaint. So even if someone calls them and says, I'm being forced to work overtime without pay, they can come in and review every single employee file for any potential violation. And, and this can cost you tons of money in terms of time, but also penalties for seemingly innocent decisions like letting somebody work through their lunch. Okay, thank you very much. Now let's, uh, let, let, let's get into another area, which is human rights laws. How, how does this pertain to, uh, to an employer-employee relationship? Human rights, I, I always think of, uh, um, you know, big, bigger level here. We're talking government, we're talking uh, big nonprofits and whatnot, but actually this, this whittles down and permeates throughout uh, a standard employment relationship. Is that right? Uh, absolutely, Bill. And, and it's interesting. I guess I've got a bit of a bias here, but, but my perspective is that I, I suspect the vast majority of human rights complaints that are filed with a tribunal are employment related. Uh, obviously, there are other situations or circumstances as well. Uh, but how does this relate? I mean, very simply, in the Human Rights Code, and, and there's different legislation in each jurisdiction, but they're largely similar. Uh, and they all protect individuals from discrimination or harassment in the context of the employment relationship, as well as other contexts. Uh, each piece of legislation sets out their own protected grounds, but generally they relate to things like uh, religion, race, disability, sexual orientation, you know, traditionally disadvantaged groups or groups that have been discriminated against historically, the legislation is designed to protect them. And so what we often see is employers get themselves into trouble inadvertently. You know, we don't see very many situations anymore, and thankfully so, where there are job postings that say, you know, for example, Asians need, need not apply or males only or things like that. I think most of us know that's way offside. Uh, but we still do see things where there is indirect discrimination. So you'll say you'll see, for example, a requirement that somebody be able to walk the shop floor or someone be able to. Um, have you know someone have perfect hearing or a perfect vision or things like that, or that we're hiring someone to teach in a Catholic school, therefore they must be of the Catholic faith. Uh, and there are exceptions for th some things like that, but my point is we often see things that are indirectly discriminatory or something as simple as our office is on the second floor and we don't have an elevator or a ramp, so if you're in a wheelchair, you're not gonna be able to work here. That's also discriminatory in an indirect way. And what we often see happen is organizations indirectly or inadvertently end up getting themselves into trouble by discriminating in that sense. The other way they often get themselves into trouble is by exposing themselves to claims. And, and I've said this probably hundreds of times now, the hiring process is the, probably the biggest minefield. 
Um, because if, for example, you have an applicant for a job and you become, oh, become aware of the fact that they have a disability or they're trying to have children or they're of a certain religion, and then you choose not to hire them for perfectly legitimate reasons, it's fairly easy for someone to say, well, you know, I saw their face sort of change when they realized I was of a certain religion and then they didn't hire me and I'm sure that has something to do with it. And then you as the employer are forced to prove the negative, to prove that their religion had nothing to do with it. So that's where we often coach our clients through the hiring process in terms of what to say, what not to say, but also how to document things properly so that if there is ever is an allegation like that made, they're in a, in a strong position to defend themselves. Otherwise, it's like I said, it's a minefield. Sometimes employers inadvertently actually do discriminate, but unintentionally. Sometimes they don't do anything wrong, but they open themselves up to allegations that they did, and it's often very difficult to uh, to defend against those allegations, especially if they come, you know, six or eight months later when you may no, no longer even remember this person, let alone why you chose not to hire them. Uh, so human rights is becoming a significant part of employment law these days, and frankly, I think uh, many employment lawyers are spending more time in the human rights tribunal than they are in the courts. Okay, thank you. Very interesting. And then uh, the, the final area that you guys help with, which, which perhaps is uh, more straightforward in terms of how that relates to, to HR and the world of work, is occupational health and safety laws. Can you give us a bit of an overview of, of, of what they are and, and, uh, and ways that employers can, can stay compliant there? Yeah, and this is interesting because I know you said it's more straightforward. It's, it's becoming less straightforward uh, because when people think of occupational health and safety, you know, we think of people, you know, getting physically injured at work and we think of a loose floorboard or someone falling down the stairs or someone having chemicals spilled upon them, etc. cetera. Uh, but it actually goes way beyond that. And in particular, most of the focus in the last five or 10 years is on harassment and sexual harassment and bullying in the workplace. Uh, so what's become very interesting is, you know, every every employer has an obligation to provide or to make reasonable efforts to provide a safe workplace. That's the starting point. Uh, but in the last, like I said, five to 10 years, we've seen a real emphasis on non-traditional risks, such as bullying and harassment. And particularly, you know, in the sort of, I guess we're now in the post Me Too era, um, the allegations of, of sexual harassment in particular, we have Bill 132 in Ontario, which was an amendment to the Occupational Health and Safety Act, which created very specific requirements for employers on harassment policies, harassment procedures for reporting, and investigations that must be carried out. And if you don't carry out an investigation and the Ministry of Labor thinks you should have, then the ministry can order that a third party conduct one at, at your cost. So a lot of, you know, when we talk about occupational health and safety, I'd say probably the majority of the time these days, we're actually talking about harassment, sexual harassment or bullying and helping our clients understand when do they need to have an investigation? What does the investigation look like? What do they do once they have the report with the conclusions that were reached in the investigation and getting back to what you and I were talking about earlier, Bill, how can we avoid most of these risks? How can we make sure that we have proper policies and procedures in place so that we don't have to go through this whole process? Um, so that's a big part of what we do as well as preventative, especially on the harassment front. We do a lot of training as well um, because there is a lot of misinformation out there about what harassment or bullying is. And it's amazing to me how many employees seem to think that any negative, negative interaction constitutes bullying. 
Uh, so we'll hear people say, well, my boss is always telling me I'm not doing my job properly. He's always, you know, complaining or getting upset with me because I'm coming in late. You know, things like that. That's not bullying. That's managing. Uh, and yet, if there is an allegation of harassment under Ontario law, the employer has a positive duty to investigate. So we often have, have to explain to our clients that, yes, you do need to investigate, but investigations can take on many different forms. And this might be a fairly cursory investigation as opposed to a much more serious allegation of you know, historical sexual harassment um, that involved several people and went on for decades. So that's a lot of what we do now when we talk about occupational health and safety. Now, outside of perhaps pursuing a, a claim as, a, as an employee or uh, someone who's looking to get a job, um, often uh, previous employees say they, uh, or people who've been uh, familiar with a with a, a brand for some reason, they they may leave a review on on a company uh, a review site such as Glassdoor, for example. Hmm. Uh, what what would be your advice there to 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 folk who are employees or uh, former employees in, in terms of doing that, the do's and don'ts, and also to to employers if, if they disagree strongly with with perhaps negative things that have been said about their business. Yeah, I mean, Glassdoor and, and websites like that are challenging because generally speaking, you can't get at, you know, the identity of the poster. Uh, so we've certainly had a lot of clients who've been quite upset about things that have been posted online and we've worked with them. And, and a lot of times it comes down to good HR and just making sure that you maintain good relationships with your employees and your departing employees as well. You know, there's nothing, n nothing better than having a, you know, a good either dismissal or a positive experience when the relationship ends. And that's certainly possible. And then that person can become one of your biggest advocates. And we've seen that happen where someone is treated respectfully, even through the dismissal process. And they will tell their friends that, you know, unfortunately it didn't work out, but they treated me professionally, respectfully, and I'd have no hesitation in recommending that company as a place to work. Um, so that's part of what we coach our clients to do, as well as to encourage other people to post positive comments to, you know, counterbalance the negative ones. Uh, because, like I said, it's often hard to actually get at the identity of the poster or, or do anything to remove those negative posts. You're often either trying to be preventative and avoid them, or if there are some negative ones, hope for the positive ones out outweigh those. Okay, so just to be clear, though, in terms of what the employers can do, if it goes on to a site such as Glassdoor, there's not a heck of a lot that they can do to get those posts removed? Is that right? Unfortunately not. I mean, absent the sort of extreme circumstances, there's not much you can do. Okay, okay. Well, at least we've got a good answer one way or another, right, guys? Uh, <laughs> and uh, now, uh, one of the reasons why you and I came together today is that you're going to be a speaker and a panelist at the upcoming Hacking HR Toronto event, which uh, I'm, I'm a co-organizer along with uh, the awesome Aldine Simmons Thorpe. Can you can you give us a bit of an overview of your presentation there? I believe that the topic uh, is concerned with the misclassification of workers and, and also some of the, the hoped for learning outcomes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the event and looking forward to, to meeting you in person, Bill. Uh, in terms of my time, I'm going to be focusing on misclassification of workers, which really, to me, seems to be an epidemic these days. Uh, it's incredible to me that people seem to think that they can just choose how they're going to be paid. You know, And it, often they're asked by the company, do you want to be paid as a contractor or paid as an employee? Uh, and that's not the question. The question that 
parties need to ask is what is the true nature of the relationship? Uh, and the reality is if you have someone who has a title in the organization, they have an office, they're provided with a laptop, they have a business card, they have a corporate email address, they have a parking space, they're on the benefit plan, they're on the organizational chart, they have an assistant, etc. It's pretty much a stretch to call them an independent contractor. Uh, it's important to remember that you know these words have meanings and independent contractor means someone that is effectively in business for themselves, providing a service to the organization as opposed to an employee who is a part of the organization, a part of the team, if you will. Uh, and there are lots of tests that have been used over the years to try to distinguish. Courts will look at things like who owns the tools or the equipment that is being used, how much control is exerted over how the work is done, whether the person has a chance of profit or a risk of loss. There's lots of tests, but really what it comes down to is are they part of the organization or are they in business for themselves? Uh, so to give you an example, I've, I've seen this many times now where people that are in you know, senior management roles, even CEO, are paid as contractors. And it's hard to imagine someone being an independent contractor when they are essentially the leader of the organization. Uh, and yet we see this all the time. And what I find, what I think people need to understand is they're taking tremendous risk. You know, From an individual's perspective, if you're a contractor, you don't have the protections of an employee. So we, we talked about employment standards a little while ago. The Employment Standards Act would not apply to, the, to a contractor. So you would not be entitled to statutory holidays, vacation, overtime, uh, breaks during the day, et cetera. Uh, and as an employer, if you pay somebody as a contractor, which means you're not deducting tax uh, withholdings, you're not deducting EI premiums, CPP premiums, if CRA were to ever look into this and determine the person's an employee, you're now on the hook, uh, in most cases, not only for the things that you failed to remit, but also potential penalties. Uh, and the individual would be at, at risk as well. So there's tremendous liability there with very little benefit. I mean, for most employers, you might save a little bit of money because there's no EI premiums and CP premiums. So you save some payroll costs, uh, but you expose yourself to tremendous liability if the person Unless you can really show that they're independent, then it's, in my view, anyways, far far more risk than it's worth. But what isn't more risk than it's worth is probably to get in contact with you uh, if if uh, listeners of this show today have any questions. So um, uh, before we wrap things up, how how can they do that, Stuart? How can they learn more about you and more about Rudner Law? That was a fantastic segue, Bill. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, a big part of what we do is, or what we enjoy doing is working with clients and meeting new clients or new potential clients. So there's no risk. Uh, we always encourage people, if they have questions, to give us a call or send us an email. And and what, one, uh, one expression I've adopted recently is that if you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. Uh, so feel free to reach out. You can always check out our website, which is rudnerlaw.ca. Uh, but as well, we have, we're on, I think, pretty well every social media platform. Uh, we have a newsletter. So even if uh, you don't need to retain us at this point, you know, sign up for our newsletter so you'll get employment law updates. Uh, I also have a monthly online show uh, called Fire Away, where we talk about different employment law topics. And um, 
we also have a, a LinkedIn group that I started called Canadian HR Law, where people can go on, post questions, and have discussions about uh, any employment law-related matter in Canada. So there's a myriad of ways to find us. Uh, but like you said, there's no risk because you can always reach out. And if we can help you, great. And if we can't, then, then there's no harm done. Okay, awesome. Well, that just leaves me to say for today, Stuart, thank you very much for being a guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Uh, thanks for having me, and I look forward to meeting you in a few weeks. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.